if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've probably heard us talk about a giving season called A Time to Build. I don't know if it's going to come up on the screen. Maybe not. Um, essentially, churches go through seasons. We all went through a season of survival during the COVID period. We've then in this church had a period of stabilizing in the last year or so. And now under God, we hope to see a time to build, uh, to build on the great, great foundations that are already here, have been dug over many years, and to see what God would uh, do and have his way among us as a church. So next Sunday morning, Steve and I will be laying forward uh, a, a, a plan, a, a mission for our church for the next year in line with all of the things that the church has agreed in the last 12 months or so. And then spelling out what the cost implications are financially. So really would it ask if you, if, you're, if you consider King's Church your spiritual home, please do come to that special Sunday morning and uh, prayerfully consider the implications of that. And then in a month's time on the 6th of November, we'll have a, a pledge Sunday where we return our pledges of offerings to support that work. I'm going to pray again and then hand straight over to Steve. Let's pray. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Lord, we're so blessed because you have spoken to us in the scriptures, this book, which is useful for training, rebuking, correcting, teaching, training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Speak to us now, we pray. Bless Steve, fill him with your spirit, and give us insight into your truth. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Well, good evening, everyone. Let me get our, hopefully, technology working here. And as I'm doing that, I wonder if I could ask you how you feel about technology that doesn't work. Hold on one second. <laughs> try this again. It worked a few minutes. There we go. So I'll say it worked a few minutes before the service. How do you feel about people who make promises? People who make promises. Um, probably people who make promises. You feel different about people who keep promises. People, anyone can make a promise, right? Um, it wasn't too long ago that in this country there was a political party choosing a leader, right? We, we all know the outcomes of, of things like that. There was, there was Sunak and Truss. And then just this last week, was there not up in Liverpool, I think, there was a labor, a labor their big meeting up in, up in Liverpool. And so, as in the U.S., I'm sure there is here, there are politicians who do what? They make promises. They say, this is what we're going to do. And then the, the proof is in the pudding of whether they follow through on that and what the outcomes are going to be. Not to get everyone all agitated about politics tonight, because maybe you just have a put off, you know, and listen to me at all. We're not going there. Um, but simply to think about where we're going tonight, um, because we have been going through this whole idea of God's big picture. The theme has been God's kingdom, so God's people uh, in God's place under God's rule. And uh, we've looked the first few weeks at the pattern of that. We'll review all this in just a moment. We've looked how that perished or was spoiled. Um, and this week we're going to look at a promise that emerges from all of that. So we've been going through God's big picture. We've been talking about just very briefly reviewing how this book, made up of, who can say, 
66 books of the Old and New Testament. We've been looking at the different puzzle pieces, how they all fit together, and really saying how in this one book with 66 uh, books within it has one author, even though there's many human authors, has one theme, namely Jesus Christ and God's plan to bless the world uh, through the coming of his kingdom. So we're looking, as we're doing this Bible overview, we're looking at it as one book. And that's so essential for us to do because if your experience is anything like mine when I became a Christian, um, I tended to approach this book looking at the bits and pieces of it and not knowing how they all fit together. And every once in a while, I get really excited when two pieces fit. I was like, wow, this one connects with this one. And, and, but honestly, most of the time, we, we can have a rather uh, sporadic hit or miss approach. We're really familiar and fond of certain parts of the Bible, and we spend a lot of time there, and that's okay. But it's essential to get a sense of the overarching story of the Bible, which is why we're doing this, with Jesus as King and Redeemer as the main subject of it all. So this is what we've been pursuing, using the theme of the kingdom of God to help us grasp that overall big picture, God's big picture of where from Genesis to Revelation the story of the Bible is going. It's simply a tool that we can use. Dave alluded to it, I believe in his prayer. We've been using that terminology intermingled in the things we're saying of being God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's not a perfect tool. But it is a, an apt tool to help us get a sense of that overall uh, trajectory of the story. So as I said, in, in the first few weeks, we looked at the pattern of the kingdom. We looked at the perished kingdom. And tonight, we're looking at the promised kingdom. And this is going to dovetail and intersect quite nicely with a lot of what we have been going through in our Abraham series on Sunday, on Sunday mornings in Genesis. So just by way of review, let's take a look at where we've gone in a bit of a, a chart. And I'm not using the pen this week. I know every week I get the pen out and it really doesn't work very well. So I decided to put in some extra hours this week and actually put some arrows and things in here. So we looked at the pattern. We looked how God made all things. And in making all things, implied in that is his rule. He was able to delegate authority to humanity saying to rule over creation uh, for him. And so we saw the pattern in Genesis 1 and 2 of God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the garden, under his rule and blessing, in his word, putting parameters and boundaries, and them living in perfect relationship with him and with one another. This is where God's rule, the blessing of it, was experienced in that pattern. But then, as we looked at it, that pattern perished. It was spoiled. We saw how that was spoiled in the temptation of the serpent, Satan, coming to Adam and to Eve and essentially causing them to doubt God's word, to question whether God should be ruling over them. Remember the knowledge of the tree and good and evil had more to do with the right to decide those things rather than simply uh, an awareness of those things. And so as we say here in the kids' work, as we've said, the children's work, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule. 
that idea of kingdom. And so with that came everything crashing down because God will not have a usurper to his rule and to his authority. And as you follow the trajectory in the first few chapters of Genesis, as we saw it, you get to Genesis chapter 3, as we saw some of the... um, the outcomes of what this led to, it is as if a bell uh, starts sounding, you know, for whom the bell tolls. You get to chapter 5 and it, it starts going through the generations from Adam to Noah and it says, and then he died. And there's this person, and then they died. And then they died. This was not part of the pattern in the beginning. And so right away we see this downward trend. We talked about how in Genesis 4 we see the first murder. We see in Genesis 6 there's this increasing wickedness on the face of the earth and God basically hits the reset button and floods everything. And just as in the beginning there was uh, darkness over the face of the deep and God spoke order into it in his creative powers, he once again puts water all over the face of the earth and he's in a sense saying, let's start over. After the flood though, we saw that we came to the Tower of Babel and <clears throat> the Tower of Babel and how um, they sought to make a name for themselves and they built a tower up into the heavens and God thwarted those efforts and confused them and, and scattered them. So saying all these things just by way of review to see that things went from this perfect pattern to things perishing and dropping precipitously over the next few chapters of Genesis. It is a dark and dismal picture that we are presented with, but there are hints of hope as we go through. If you need a Bible, um, John has some in the back. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to Genesis in these first few chapters. Genesis chapter 3. So there's hints of hope, even in the midst of this dark and dismal picture as we're leading up to where we're going tonight with the promise of the kingdom. Genesis chapter 3, have no idea where that is in the church Bible, but guess what? It's right at the beginning. You should be able to find it. Uh, No problem. Genesis chapter 3. And in the cursing on the serpent, that first hint of hope, even as God is in response to humanity's sin, judging it and responding to this usurpation of his authority and his kingdom. In verse 15, as he's cursing the serpent, there is a hint of hope. Because he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We saw this serpent just kind of emerge in chapter 3 out of nowhere But what is he doing right from the start? He is attacking the rule of God in the garden. So the Lord, in this verse here, there's this little hint that somewhere in the future will be an offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. it's It's a hinting of all that being undone. We talked about the first murder, but there is also the birth of Seth. If you look at the end of chapter 4, 
Chapter 4 deals with Cain murdering his brother Abel. And so the question is, what's going to happen with this sense of hope? Is this offspring coming? And in verse 25 of chapter 4, it says, Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so in the birth of Seth, here's this line, if you will, that we're going to start tracing here just a little bit. Because notice I have on there, there's ten generations after creation that talks about to the flood. And then after the flood, ten generations to what we're going to talk about tonight. And in this, we see God having an element, a, a remnant that he is going to use to start undoing what was broken. You have a hint of this, another just little pinprick of light, if you will, if you go into the genealogies of chapter 5. And if you look at verse 21, we're introduced to someone named Enoch. And it says in verse 21, when Enoch lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and he had other sons and daughters. Now, here's something different. You remember there's been the steady beat if we were to go through Genesis 5 of there was this person who lived this long and they died. There was this person who lived this long and they died. Let's not get caught up in the hundreds of years and things like that just for the moment. Just, just follow along and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. And then there's Enoch. And what's different about Enoch? Verse 23, altogether Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Where's the hope in that? The hope in that is that in the midst of this relenting rhythm of the announcement, this person died, this person died, this person died, this person died. Then all of a sudden there's someone who by God's grace is, is pulled out of that cycle. That there's the hope that somehow what's been broken can be redeemed. That the ramifications can be reversed. And that's the pinprick hope that we see in Enoch's escape from all this. Enoch's escape. Then we see the choice of Noah in chapter 6. Remember, things got exceedingly wicked. And what does God do? He picks one family. This is going to become a pattern that we see. But he picks one family. And he rescues them out of the judgment that was to come. And so there is an act of God's grace. It wasn't that Noah was anyone special or anyone exceptional, but God came along and chose him to save him out of this. And then where we come tonight is the choice of someone named Abram. Again, not an exceptional person, but as we come to chapter 12, I encourage you to turn there, is where we'll be tonight. We meet this man that we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. And as things have gone from Genesis 1, beautiful, chapter 2, perfect, 
pattern of the kingdom, living in perfect relationship with God and with one another. Human sin, we see that perish. And there's been this downward trajectory now for several chapters, culminating in chapters 10 and 11, where we see the Tower of Babel and people are scattered all over the earth. They're separated, no longer living in perfect relationship with one another, can't even communicate. They're not even next to one another anymore. And no longer living in perfect uh, fellowship with God. Where, where is the hope going to take us? And that's where we come to in Genesis chapter 12. Because God comes along and he makes a promise. He makes a promise about his plan to reverse, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, all of this that has fallen apart. All of this that has perished or spoiled. So look at Genesis 12. We looked at this just a few weeks ago. The first three verses is all we're going to look at tonight in terms of these verses. And it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's so important that we read that verse, that last one, in light of where everything has come to. Where did we leave off in Genesis chapter 11? All peoples on earth scattered everywhere because things had fallen apart because of human sin. And what we encounter here is a promise of God and his intention. All these little pinpricks of hope we've been reading along the way are now brightly dropped in this promise to Abraham saying God is going to initiate a rescue plan to remedy all this. That's what this promise is is about. He makes several promises in there. He says, I will make you into a great nation. We'll talk about that in a little bit of there's God's people. He says, I will give you a land and we're going to get into that. All these different things. But I want to read a quote from John Stott on this about really how important this passage of scripture is to the unfolding. It's like a key, if you will, to the, the unfolding of the rest of the story of the Bible. It is this. It is no exaggeration to say that Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 is the most unifying text of the whole Bible for God's saving purpose is encapsulated in, in it. Namely to bless the whole world through Christ. Remember we spoke just a few moments ago that the, the whole theme of the Bible is God's story to bless the world through Jesus Christ by bringing people into his kingdom willingly to live under his rule. He was Abraham's seed or his descendant. The rest of the Bible is an unfolding of, of it and subsequent history has been a fulfillment of it. For God first prepared Israel for Christ's coming and then through his coming has been blessing the world ever since. We ourselves would not be followers of Jesus today, for those of us in the room who are, if it were not for this text. Because the coming of Jesus Christ, we'll, we'll, we'll 
try to put these pieces together by the end of this, if not through Sunday mornings in this. But the coming of Jesus Christ only fully comes into sharp focus of understanding it when we realize it is connected with the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis. Well, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12. If it were not for this text, we are the beneficiaries of the promise God made to Abraham about 4,000 years ago. And so these verses are essential for us to get a grasp of what it is. There was the pattern, that pattern perished, and now this is God's promised rescue plan. And this puts everything else that comes in the scripture into perspective. It has a momentum. The story is going someplace. So one of the most important things for us to grasp then is this idea of a covenant. Because as that's what God did in Genesis chapter 12, it's unfolded even further in Genesis chapter 15 where we were today. And if you want to make a note of it, it unfolds even more in Genesis chapter 17. But what is a covenant? On the screen behind you, this is from an evangelical dictionary of theology that I have on my shelf upstairs. But it's a compact or an agreement between two parties, binding them mutually to undertakings on each other's behalf. We've mentioned on Sunday mornings, one of the most powerful and poignant pictures is that of marriage, of two people making vows to one another. It's, a, it's not simply a contract, though it is legally binding, that there's relational elements to it. Theologically speaking, used of relations between God and humans, it denotes a gracious undertaking entered into by God for the benefit and blessing of humanity. Remember what he said to, to, to Abram, all nations of the world will be blessed through you and, and Abram would be blessed himself and his descendants. Specifically, those who by faith receive the promise and commit themselves to the obligations with this undertaking involves. So what's, what's a covenant in shorthand? <laughs> it's an agreement. It's a formal but intimate personal relational agreement but it's it's formal and it has stipulations and it has boundaries to it and it is essential as well to understanding the unfolding of scripture because we said as we opened up the box a few weeks ago what are the two main bags that the pieces are in old testament and new testament testament's just another word for covenant and so covenant is an, is, a, is an essential term to understand. It occurs over roughly 318 times in the Bible. So it's not just a, a random thought. Most often it was that kind of relationship legally like between two parties, like a man and a woman in marriage or, or something like that. A bilateral arrangement where the two parties would make uh, commitments to one another. But as we're finding here in Genesis chapter 12, there's something very different, something very unique, and something very special about it in that God is acting unilaterally. He's coming along, and this is remarkable. Because I'll just say, this is why it's so important to get the trajectory of, of Scripture. And this is dangerous because I'm going off the cuff here, right? So, so often when we live in the New Testament, there's the misperception that the God of the Old Testament is angry, mean, and cantankerous. That he's judgmental. That he's violent. God has been the wronged party from Genesis 1 through 11. 
his creation, that he graciously provided this perfect environment to live under his rule, blessed in perfect relationship with one another and him, has rebelled against him and the world has fallen apart because of it. And what does he do? He shows up in chapter 12, picks a guy out of obscurity and says, I'm going to rescue the world. I'm going to bless them. By my grace, I'll make a way to reverse this. It's a beautiful thing that has, that has occurred here. And God does it unilaterally where he bears all the conditions of the covenant himself. This is not the first example of a covenant in the Bible. In fact, we didn't mention this, but we went, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 9, where in the midst of the flood, God comes after that and he once again makes a unilateral promise. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Unilateral. God said, look, if you don't do this again, I won't do it again. He says, if you don't mess up again, then I won't have to do this again. He says, no, unilaterally in this instance, there was no condition. He just simply says, I will never again flood the earth. God acting unilaterally to bless people. Genesis chapter 12, again, God acting unilaterally as the nations have been spread out. Now he says in chapter 12, verse 3, all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. God has a rescue plan that he is going to see through, that he is promising now in seed form to Abram. And as it's planted in the soil of Scripture, if you will, it will grow and expand into a fuller picture until we get into the New Testament and it blooms in its entirety in the person of Jesus Christ, but we're, we're running ahead now. It's really hard not to, just to be honest, because the story of Scripture is so compelling. You want to start taking all the pieces and putting them together and say, look at this, look at this, look at this. And the picture of the Lord Jesus through it all is, is remarkable. We're also going to see there's a covenant that matters as we move forward into the next section called the Mosaic Covenant, but we'll, we'll refrain from that right now. So here's what we want to look at and review to see where we've gotten to this point. We had the pattern of the kingdom where we saw God's people, Adam and Eve, where were they? God's place, the Garden of Eden, God's rule and blessing. They, were, they had God's word to, to direct them and, and to rule over them and they had perfect relationship with him and one another. It was a perfect arrangement. What do we see though? That perished because of human sin and so there was no one who was God's people for the most part as we went through this. As we saw with the Tower of Babel, they were scattered so they were in no place unified and we had God's rule and blessing. How would they experience that? Well, they weren't. There was only the declaration of a curse. But when we get to Genesis 12 with this promise that is made to Abram, we find that there is um, 
this kingdom being promised to Abraham and his descendants. So there's the paradigm we're looking at again to help us understand the flow of this story throughout Scripture. God's people, Abraham and his descendants. So how is God going to work this promise out? Through a people. He selected someone not because of their skill set, not because of their success, not because of, of anything that would merit it, simply because he said to Abram, I pick you, and I will bless all nations through you. You and your descendants will be blessed. His place, the promised land. There's a reason why it's called the promised land, Canaan. But he says, I'll give you as an inheritance. And he says that there will be again God's rule and blessing, blessing for Israel, for Abraham and his descendants, but also all nations. This is very important too for us to keep in perspective because as New Testament Christians, we can think it's only with the coming of Jesus that God's plan for the world went global. And that's just not true. That God's intention from the beginning, from Genesis 12, the, the, the solution to all of this was always that God had in mind that all nations of the world would be blessed through his kingdom. That's why we said, if we go back to this picture, that the story of Scripture is united and it pivots around this passage of seeing all things come into focus around the person of Jesus Christ. It points all elements, eventually all streams of narrative flow to this point where with Jesus we see the coming of the kingdom of God in him and all nations coming to him. Let's look at that a little bit further with where we just were. In a book called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. It's a pretty standard missions text in America. I'm not sure if it is here. Um, this gentleman, Richard Bauckham, says the ultimate goal of God's promise to Abraham is the blessing that will prevail over the curse. It does when the seed of Abraham, the singled out descendant of Abraham, the Messiah, becomes a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. God's blessing here that he's describing, what he's introduced in Genesis chapter 12, is the recipe for the rescue plan of reversing everything. And this is why we have spoken about in our times together about this flow being essential to understanding how the story goes. Because remember, these are not bits and pieces that, that just randomly we select through. But they are pieces that God has in his wisdom put together and given us that gives us a picture and a narrative of what he's doing to reverse what went wrong. The Old Testament promise, as we now see it, as we've outlined it in Genesis 12 that we referred to uh, just a moment ago, and ultimately that coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, remember we had this just a moment ago, right? We had the pattern. We saw that it perished in Genesis 3 to 11. And we see that being promised, but that promise, remember in seed form, it's like... It's like it's been launched. <laughs> it's like a rocket that's been launched and the trajectory takes us ultimately 
here. And if we don't understand that dynamic, working our way through the Bible, we're going to continue to be confused and try to struggle to put pieces together, not quite sure how it's all supposed to work. What we're trying to do in this, again, is not to make all of you or any of us experts in the detailed, granular things of Scripture. But what we're trying to do is paint that overall narrative so that you can see how this all fits together and navigate your way through it. I want to start shifting a little bit to seeing how this dynamic that I just put up on the screen starts to play out without jumping too far forward. But just to give you a hint, and I think Mike referenced these verses this morning. I just want to go through them again, albeit maybe a little slower. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. What was that good news? Gospel means good news. What is it that he, adva- he announced in advance? All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith as opposed to works, if you read Galatians, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Remember, God didn't choose him for anything he had done. He came along and made a promise, and it says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 14 goes on to say, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. If we were to go back to this, that's what Paul was just describing in Galatians chapter 3. It, ready, I'm going to try this. The laser pointer, ready? (laughs) It started down here. Is it on the screen? Yes, all right. And the trajectory he was just talking about takes us right here in Galatians. That God announced the gospel in advance. You say, how's the gospel there? It's grace. It's God choosing a rescue plan that blesses without anything based on what we've done. And that trajectory takes it all the way forward to the New Testament where we see it in all its fully developed glory here. So what do we do with this? I think just some thoughts for takeaways for us because we've got the promise. Now we don't want to run too far forward, which I've already started to do. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to slow the train back down. But just some food for thought to think about. Uh, some, is on, some of these things are on your, your uh, pages that you received when you came in. Um, but one that's not on there. So one is, uh, I think, about reading in Romans chapter four, uh, chapter 4, which describes this dynamic of faith. And that's the tension that is in these promises here. We, we talked about it with Abraham. In what ways does God promise to Abram 
uh, does that demonstrate his grace? There's a tension in these promises that he's made that we covered this morning that Abram doesn't see him happening. <laughs> it's not like they're all coming, oh yeah, God promises and boom, there it is. There's this tension where he has to trust God with what he cannot see happening in front of him. So as we think about these promises that God is making and how it demonstrates his grace, I also, that number two there, would encourage you in, our time, in your time after this to read Romans 4 and reflect upon how the promises made to Abraham are ultimately fulfilled in Christ and then how our faith is vital for grasping and entering into that rescue plan that God has promised. The other side of that, and Dave, I love the songs you've been picking on Sunday nights, but the one you picked about God's kingdom coming and the things we've been praying about to think through Matthew, if you will, just turn there, 28. And we'll close with this. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28. Right before Jesus ascends back into heaven after he was crucified, died, and was buried. We'll come back to these verses in the future, but I feel like they're good for us to be reminded of because in these thoughts we looked at tonight was God's plan for blessing to go to the world. By way of review, remember, God's kingdom we're talking about here is not a geographical boundary, but a right to rule. His sovereign right to rule as king. And as a church, we've talked about how we exist to invite all people into an ever-growing relationship with King Jesus. We're inviting people to come by faith into a relationship with the king, to enter into his kingdom. And Jesus says in the Great Commission, as some of us will know well, he came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The kingdom is his. He's the king. <laughs> and he says, our role, he says, therefore go and make disciples of who? All nations. It's this plan coming to fulfillment that all nations of the world are to be blessed in him. And he says, how do we do that? He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So as we've sung and as we've prayed about, God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, all these different things to know that as we grasp the story of how this book goes, there's an invitation for us to enter into that kingdom ourselves and then also to be a part of seeing that kingdom come in other people's lives, of inviting people into that ourselves, to graciously say there's a God who made a rescue plan. It's not the way he made the world to be. It's still to come, and you can be a part of that, and we can be a part of people entering into that. So let's just take that thought as we close and Dave's going to lead us in song. <clears throat> Lord, as we continue to shape out this um, picture of what you're doing in the scriptures, that story that unfolds, I pray that you just give grace and Lord, anything helpful tonight that I was able to share that you would use, anything that was not helpful, that you would just filter that away 
so that people can leave this room tonight with a better grasp of your big picture, of, of your word and what you're doing in the world, particularly through your son. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to see how the pieces fit together, that you would give us grace to see that there is a grand narrative that unfolds and ultimately all points to your intention to graciously bless all nations of the earth through your son. Thank you that you took the initiative. Thank you that it is not dependent upon us, but that you unilaterally acted to bless. Because if it was left up to us, we would have floundered and the story could have ended differently. But you and your good pleasure to reflect who you are and bring glory to yourself set out a plan to redeem and to rescue. And we just worship you tonight that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are the same God in the Old Testament that you are in the New, and that we see your glorious story of redemption unfold. So please give us eyes to see that, but also give us hearts to respond to the God we see revealed in this story. Help us to worship you, and help us to take seriously, Lord, that all authority truly is yours that you are king and that we have this tremendous privilege and responsibility of inviting all people, all nations into an ever-growing relationship with our good, gracious, and glorious king. So we, we pray that you would lead us in that, empower us in that, and we thank you that your power is made perfect in our weakness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand, we're going to sing um, about God's rescue plan, finding its fulfillment um, at the cross and at the empty tomb. As we heard um, Steve share, um, we don't deserve that based on Genesis 1 to 11, but the words of this next song are incredible. Um, in verse 2 it says, Humbly you came to the earth, you created all for love's sake, became poor. So let's stand and let's worship together.